there's demonstrably little correlation in some big labs like Mike Eisen or Randy Sheckman between publishing in the glamour journals and the validity of, of or the importance of a given piece of, of work. Um, and you can see that in on Mendeley. Some of the most highly read papers are from places that are that were not, you know, um, esteemed journals. And this is all powered, of course, by the fact that everything's turning into a database, right? And instead of grabbing an issue of a journal um, that you respect and reading through that, you're getting things pushed at you as recommendations, and they could come from anywhere, one of a host of journals. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Ethers from Northeastern University, and we are joined by a special guest, William Gunn, the Director of Scholarly Communications at El Sevier. William, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, big William, fan of the William teaches how to say El Sevier. We're, how do we we're, say we're, it properly? We're just having an argument. How do we say the name of the, the, the company? Most people say El Sevier. That implies that it isn't right. <laughs> you know, you can say it however you like, but the, the people in the Dutch office, they all say Elsevier. So I imagine that's as close to a canonical source of truth as you're going to get. Nice. 45 seconds in and we've got to canonical sources yes. of truth. <laughs> so tell us, William, what what sort of stuff do you do day to day for your um, job? My role is kind of an, an interesting one that it's sort of evolved over time. I was originally um, with Mendeley, and Mendeley uh, was acquired about three years ago now uh, by Elsevier. And so what I did for, uh, for Mendeley was just kind of to help them um, have a voice in the, you know, the, the broader scholarly community uh, and understand, you know, what researchers were talking about and, you know, how to evolve the product in such a way that it would meet, you know, not just their current needs, but kind of where they were, where they were going, um, as a, uh, as a company. And then after we got acquired by Elsevier, uh, I more or less continued that role, um, and with a slightly different, uh, focus because, um, you know, Elsevier obviously wants to keep its eye on the ball and to do a little bit more of, uh, of a, a better job of telling the story of uh, reinvention and how they're changing um, uh, the perception of what they do to being more of an information and analytics company and not just a publisher and uh, someone who's already connected to various academic communities and, you know, uh, comes from the, the Mendeley background, which is a basically an example of what what they're trying to do um, was a good fit for that role okay what differentiates a, an analytics company from a publishing company well so um, a publishing company I think everyone understands as you know you you uh, get articles submitted and you know you have an editorial process and you publish those articles and then people either you know they either pay uh, you know, or don't pay a fee at some point in the beginning to read them, and they either pay or don't pay a subscription fee to access them. And and that's pretty much it. Um, when you start thinking about it, information analytics company, you're thinking about the broader question of how do we get the right piece of information into the hands of the right person at the right time? Um, and that transcends a little bit the idea of the journal as a container for the information, gets you into data services, um, and also... Um, you know, um, opens up some um, opportunities with with government and with funding agencies to understand kind of what um, uh, what are the current trends in research, how to most you know effectively spend their their research funding dollars, what policies to set. You know, so it, it's a much broader question than just you know here is okay. the research. It's yeah, so there's a, there's a, a, devolu a devolution away from here is a funding model where we get a piece of information and we sell a thing and that's our entire business. Um, does does that include does that include the idea of making 
a journal article more open-ended or something that is something that's capable of being updated and or dynamic like say everything else on the entire internet yeah absolutely absolutely you know um, academic publishing we always kind of laugh about this because the you know the web was invented you know essentially to share scholarly resources but we're kind of the last to come around to really adopt the web as what it has become and uh hmm. um one of the things that you that you see at Elsevier doing now is well, we, we have a, a preprint repository now, actually a family of them um, from SSRN and BioRN, um, and um, we have uh, a data repository launched by Mendeley. So we have these kinds of things that are a little bit bigger than just the you know um, the journal item itself. Oh, is the data repository just for open data practices or is it so people can go and use the data to be research parasites? I love being a research parasite. Yeah, yeah. We love research parasites too. Um, so it is... <laughs> yeah. I mean, There's a have... great article on parasitism just, just gone. Uh, they reckon that uh, open fMRI data saved about three million pounds. I saw that. Since they nice. started one... Yeah, you saw that one? Mm. Yeah, sort three, of, million, sort of three million pounds is not an insignificant amount of money, but you know, open open data, proper access, and um, parasites ahoy! Yeah, and so the idea, you know, behind the data repository, one is so that people don't have to write a paper just to say, "Hey, I've accumulated this great data set. I would like to share it." You know, you have something that mm. can be out there that can be cited, and it can be reused. You know, um, we've we've all dealt with the problems of there's this great data set that's, you know, in PDF form as supplementary tables at the back of a paper, <laughs> which is, you know, just like, it's useless, you know, so. It's, just, it's useless, yeah. Yeah. There's plenty, and there's also, yeah, there's tons of, there's tons of things that are in that format, especially PDF images that are never coming back until you pay someone to digitize it. Oh, I don't know. It's a, it's kind of, it gets into the sort of job for Google territory. You think about all the resources like that that have been funded and paid for and then just lost. Well, you know, Peter Murray um, Rust has this great um, uh, saying, which is that, you know, um, PDF is hamburger and we're trying to turn it back into a cow. <laughs> Point being, yeah. it'd be easier just to not grind up the thing in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I had the, the, the worst, the, the greatest the greatest regret of my ACA. I, I met a cardiologist about five or six years ago. He had all this amazing uh, blood pressure heart rate crossover data for building models where he had indwelling catheters. Now, it's really hard to get research to do indwelling catheters, but he was opening up healthy people and sticking a pressure transducer in their aorta. This was awesome data. You just can't get this data anymore. And he was, he was, oh, we did all these cool studies with it and that was fine and it's really old, but it's still accurate enough. I said, that's fantastic. Where's all the data? And he went, oh, well, it was on paper and we lost it. Like, oh, you bastard. <laughs> you bastard. Just because it wasn't, it wasn't retained. They weren't publishing on it anymore. They stuck it in a filing cabinet. They moved offices. Funding priorities changed and we're never going to get it back. And you can't do that stuff anymore. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like, what's, what could be more? It's like, oh, I wonder if it's ethical to open people up and jam things in them. Well, you know, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's not unethical to use the data where someone already did it. Exactly. Uh, but, and, and you yeah, the irony that is that when he told me that, I mean, he stabbed him. Yeah. Sorry? <laughs> I was going to say, you, you kind of argue it's unethical just to, to collect that data, open healthy people up, subject them to all those risks, and then throw the data away. Like, no funder yeah. would let you do that nowadays. They would mm. require you yeah. to have a data No, not, ni- not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. This is like, they would have done this 35 years ago. And I don't know what medical ethics was in Australia 35 years ago. Probably just, don't kill him, Terry. Yeah. And then that was, you know, <laughs> they just give you a drill bit and say, go. Um, what were we going to talk? We had a we had a much more sort of focus that I'd imagined of this going so far. Um, because <laughs> well, we wanted specifically talk about go Dan, you you're the focus one. Do the focus. <laughs> well, last episode we were speaking with Michelle Noyton, uh, who's the developer of StatCheck, which automatically flags inconsistencies in papers. And uh, she was telling interesting stories that um, there were a few authors that had these. Um, 
papers that were flagged, and uh, they noticed a few mistakes, and they contacted the journals saying, uh, we'd like to uh, correct some of the mistakes. And the editor of the journals were like, no, that's, uh, the, these, these mistakes aren't big enough for you to actually change change the mm. record. Uh, so quite often, not only do we have people who are, or journals that are, that are, that are asking authors to change things in their papers, but even authors who are asking to change things in their own papers, yet they're having trouble doing this, uh, almost in a sense that uh, it, it seems like some editors just don't want to rock the boat. Now, do you do you think that the present scientific environment is friendly to these formal objections to, to, to publish research? How do you think this sort of fits in the, the, the current environment? Well, you know, um, I don't specifically know, but I assume that um, it's no less... Uh, friendly or unfriendly to criticism than any other field of human endeavor. It's just that we sort of assume that it must be this impartial, emotionless process that, you know, the instances where it's not are just so much more surprising to us. Um, so I think there's that kind of um, expectation gap um, that makes it particularly um, noticeable. Um, but, but it, you know, it's certainly it's true that, that um, um, there's, you know, there are folks who just don't want to be bothered with, you know, minor corrections. There are folks that, you know, uh, researchers, reviewers, editors, we're all humans. And we, you know, we would like everyone to just be like, you know, okay, I see the, you know, the bulk of the evidence is leaning, you know, in a different direction. I'm just going to step out of the way. But, you know, I think we have to realize that it doesn't always happen that way in, um, uh, when you have, when you have humans in the mix and uh, one of the things that's important to point out is that a lot of editors um, get um, you know um, they get approached in a, uh, a manner that uh, probably you know um, a lot of customer service reps at you know um, telecom companies get approached right in other words you know it's not like somebody is writing a dear colleague, I would like to call your attention to the following, you know, issues kind of a thing. It's it's a little more bit more sort aggressive. Of, are you re- do you realize how bad this is, you fool? <laughs> it's a little bit more emphatic. Is that, yeah. is that how you contacted do, the, um, do, do, do the journalist, James? Do editors deal with... Did it, sorry? No, that's you, not how I... I'm <laughs> unbelievably polite. You know that, Dan, you idiot. Um, <laughs> do, the unfailingly, unfailingly pleasant, you bastard. Um, <laughs> do editors deal? Look, neither of us, neither of us are old or unhygienic enough to be editors. Do they deal with a lot of cranks and people throwing rocks at them? Oh yeah. Is I mean, that a normal in the life of an editor? I can't speak to exactly how frequent it is, but the um, the editors that I talk to when you um, uh, when you bring up. Um, issues of, you know, like editorial misconduct and post-publication peer review, you know, um, our, our stat check, for example, there are a lot of them more like, oh, this is good. And some of them were like, oh, no, please don't add to my load. Um, uh, there's a, um, a famous indi- pseudonymous individual that goes by the name Claire Francis. You mentioned Claire Francis to any editor and they will, you know, they'll, they'll shudder because he's just, you know, um, uh, notorious for you know um, constantly hounding editors about about various things and and everyone has their has their issues um, so you know and there's uh, yeah. one thing that I, I think is important to point out here is that it's not really the editor's job to be the referee about what's scientific truth it's the editor's job to you know um, referee the process of of distilling what was submitted to them to an article it's the job of the peer reviewers in the scientific community to figure out what the truth consensus is but you have a lot of people that do all the the meta research on peer review for the last 40 years has had a a certain element of peer review is a lottery and often sucks so if there's a hole in the process is it there well so um i would argue that there's a whole lot of places where the editorial um and, and peer review process doesn't focus um, where it should, and 
a lot of what gets submitted isn't submitted in a form that is um, where you can't even um, actually ask some of the questions that you'd want to ask, like how many hypotheses did this person run through to describe their data before they hit upon this one they're using, you know? Um, hmm. And that's why um, we started this whole registered reports um, kind of thing with some of the neuroscience journals and psychology, um, social science journals. And the idea yeah, is, for sure. yeah, do you know about the registered reports? Yeah, by um, Chris hmm. Chambers. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think this is uh, this is a fantastic uh, initiative. And uh, it kind of works very closely with, uh, in episode 35, we were discussing the uh, Manifesto for Reproducible Science, which was published in the, um, the first issue of Nature Human Behavior. Uh, now, historically, these uh, reproducibility, reproducibility studies are incredibly tough to get published. What sort of stuff is happening at Elsevier to make this easier? Well, there's a whole um, uh, set of things that we're doing. Register reports is, is part of it. Um, we're going to be uh, tagging uh, articles um, as replication studies when they're submitted. We have a few. Um, we have a, a new article type in several journals, as well as some um, uh, separate journals to um, specifically call for replication studies. Right now in um, in economics, um, there's a, a call for publications specifically for replication studies out. Um, and uh, we're going to be linking from replication studies um, back to the original, original articles um, in Science Direct. Uh, we're going to be doing different kinds of enhancements to you know, point to um, the raw data from a paper so you don't have to um, you know, try to make that hamburger uh, back into a cow. And uh, uh, there's a, you know, a lot of these kinds of, there's a whole lot of initiatives that we're working on in, in that area. Um, but it's, uh, it's not something that, you know, that we can, we can do alone. You know, we had, uh, we've had in our history, several, um, journal of negative results kinds of experiments where everyone says, Oh, you guys should have totally have this journal for negative results. That's what we need to combat mm. publication bias. And so we launched this journal, and nobody submits anything. <laughs> Interesting, <laughs> right? So yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Well, look, part of part of that's um part of that's gone down with the the, the fact that if you've got a more more general uh, open access outlets, preprints, uh, plus one especially, it's it's much easier even than sort of five, ten years ago than it is to publish something that absolutely did not work. It's much easier to find a home for it now than even in the relatively recent past. Right, and one thing we really so realized... A so journal, a journal that's specifically devoted to negative results, I mean, and then that that is taking out all the other... I mean, what about a journal of partial replications? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what we realized by yeah, talking it, with people and thinking about this was that... Um, People don't want a new journal for this kind of stuff. They want to publish, you know, their replications or their negative results or whatever in the same journals that, you know, they publish other things. Uh, they don't want them mm. to be kind of be just put over in some other place. So that's why we have these new article types as opposed to a new journal. It's like the, the yeah, trial rule. Sense. You, that makes sense. You, you know, you break it, you buy it. So if a particular journal publishes a paper and someone comes along and replicates it, then the journal should be compelled to actually publish the replication. Yeah, I would love to see yeah, more journalists actively seek out um, uh, replication studies of work in their journal. I think there's no better way to really, you know, um, for us to put um, uh, some meaning behind the statement that we make all the time about how, you know, like we're careful curators of the literature than actively seek these things out. But when we were doing the... Um, when I say we, and this is something I started when I was at Mendeley, the rep, uh, reproducibility project, where we actually raised the money from the Arnold Foundation and did direct experimental replications of pen, papers in Cell and you know um, uh, Nature and Science. Uh, mm. This those was the all cancer one, in, wasn't it? Yeah, those were that all was published. That's the cancer reproducibility thing, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was um that was in the papers. Yeah, yeah, it was in the papers a few times, and you would, we, and we did say to to Cell and Nature and Science, you guys, 
don't you want to publish um, these replication studies in your own journal rather than us have this all go somewhere else? Wouldn't that just you know seem like the more yeah. right thing to do? But that they were they were not interested, and so there's a, an eLife collection, um, and uh, and Nature News for its you know to its credit has done a really good job of reporting on this over the years, um, but uh, and Manya Baker specifically, yeah. but different uh, different different editorial stuff. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, there's a. How how much of this, the center of all of these issues is the idea that we've spent a very long time thinking of uh, when you when when you you get a when you get a publication, it's a thing that you have. It's this discrete unit. It's a discrete entity, and you get it, and you win, and you you tuck it under your arm, and then that's it. That's the end of the story. You get to keep it until the end of time. And you'd pick up your bat and ball and go home because you've got the thing. It's not really indicative of science as a process. It's more it's science as a, 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 an endeavor to produce measurable units, which is kind of bullshit. Yeah, managerialism is, is kind of a, a, a disease in, in many industries, but I think particularly... Well, it's a disease in universities even more yeah. than it is in journals. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, so, the, I mean, the, there should be some you know, uh, some push to, to deliver results and to make good use of, of research funds. But it, this is not the kind of thing that can be done top down by, by anyone. You know, you have the whole com- community kind of has to lurch, you know, towards, um, towards the change. And thinking of research, uh, the research process as a conversation and not as like a discrete, you know, uh, quanta of truth mm. is really kind of I think a better way um, to to think about that. Um, the uh, um, I can't remember to whom to attribute this quote, but maybe you guys know it. Um, uh, the research paper isn't the work; it's the advertisement of the work. Right? It's the announcement that I have done this thing, and here's my description of it. Right? And but so many people kind of think of that as the, the end object. And it gets a little bit of a you know biased, and then you have this whole pressure that comes in where people say, not only do we want you to publish, and we're going to count how many times you publish, but we're going to count the publications in this narrow, small set of journals for even more. You know, obviously that that really kind of creates a bottleneck and makes things a little more um, prone to bias. So, yeah. Well, having this conversation not this morning, I think we, we, we are at a point now where if you are applying for an academic position at a reasonably evolved university and talking to people on a hiring committee, in a pinch, you might even get them to say, read your papers, no matter where they were actually published, and also get credit for non-necessarily fancy journal publications. So broader, broader work... Uh, uploaded data, available code, general open science practice stuff. I've seen that on a couple of job ads now, but more generally. Pretty rare, though. Yeah, but it's starting. The point being, of course, is that if you have to convince someone in university, you might be able to convince the, the academic staff that you're a great hire and a wonderful human being who brushes his teeth twice a day, etc., etc. You're going to have much harder time convincing people who... Uh, are the managerial aspect of hiring that you're a wonderful candidate compared to someone else who's got a great big stack of appropriate stuff they've done? Yeah, you know, we've talked about this stuff for a, a, for you know forever, and I've been in so many different conversations. Um, Mendeley was kind of right there at the start of the whole alt metrics um, movement, and we had you know uh, an indicator that was available to people. Um, that wasn't based on citations. It was based on who's actually reading it. So you have um, mm. input from you know practitioners in a much broader community, much more rapid. Um, what it all comes down to is you know um, the best thing to do is to you know is to hire good people and just let them do their stuff, right? The question is, of course, how do you know who's the good person and who isn't? And that's really where it's where it gets down to. to to a judgment call um, and it's certainly you know there's there's probably little correlation um, there's demonstrably little correlation in some big labs like Mike Eisen or Randy Sheckman 
between publishing and the glamour journals and the validity of, of or the importance of a given piece of, of work. Uh, and you can see that in on Mendeley. Some of the most highly read papers are from places that are that were not, you know, um, esteemed journals. And this is all powered, of course, by the fact that everything's turning into a database, right? And instead of grabbing an issue of a journal um, that you respect and reading through that, you're getting things pushed at you as recommendations, and they could come from anywhere, one of a host of journals. So, you know, it could be 10 years down the road, it's going to be more important to have an article, you know, that is, you know, um, if you want to be cynical about it, is optimized, you know, to show up highly in search results, as opposed to something that, uh, you know, is published in a widely read journal. It just kind of. But how I think, it, yeah, well, if that's if that's driven by an algorithm, though. it is hard to it is hard to plan around. If that's driven by an algorithm, you you can write something and then hope that it's useful to people, but you can't go. <laughs> in my nefarious plan, in ten years, this will be super important to everyone. <laughs> you can't just prioritize right, that stuff. Right, exactly. It happens if it's important. J- James and I have accidentally done this. We published a paper which, um, without even thinking, it had a particular title that people tend to put this title into Google Scholar and it's the first thing that comes up. No one is reading the paper. They're going by the title and citing it a heck of a lot of times. Right. Um, and just, really by, just, 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 just by accident. It, it just, wasn't even a paper, down. It, it was, was some a goofy editor. letter. <laughs> you walked into the office looking vague one day and said, oh, this is a problem. We should say something about this. We, we spent um, about an hour putting it together. We smacked each other in the back of a head for about two hours in one afternoon. And then sent, probably sent it, sent it off that night or the next morning. And now it's got some dumb amount like, of citations. 70, 70 citations. 70. Because it's, it's, totally yeah. unwarranted. Yeah. Totally um, and completely unwarranted. It was a minor thing about uh, heart rate processing. Doesn't matter. It, yeah. It's... Uh, and most of these people it, didn't It shouldn't be. It. Can you give citations back? <laughs> um, <laughs> Is it like a fish? Can you just chuck them back in? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think ah, people but... as well are also going to be... People will game the system no matter how, how the system's changing. Uh, it's been good that there's been a shift to altmetrics and to how many times people are, are talking about an article online. This is a fantastic way of doing it. But then if this actually becomes a norm and uh, universities start taking this more seriously, which I hope they do in a way... I just have a feeling that people are going to start gaming this thing as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so it's... Uh... <laughs> it's almost as if we didn't have any money and there was lots of competition between <laughs> clever, motivated people, Dan. Yes, almost. Funny so the, that. The, um, the gaming is a sign that you're doing something right. You know, all uh, systems that are, are valuable to, to anyone um, in any way are going to be gamed. And if they're not being gamed, then they're not valuable. <laughs> so it's just a question of how you how you how you deal with it. And one of the things that we think is going to be uh, pretty effective is to um, look at multiple correlated uh, metrics. So now you you have um, you know you have your page views, your PDF downloads, your citations, um, your readers on Mendeley, you know number of tweets, the number of times robots have you know indexed the the XML. You have all these different metrics, and they're all going to be correlated to one another um, within a certain certain range. So if you want to, so if one of those particular measurements goes way out of whack, then that's a flag to look at. Is somebody trying to game that one particular metric? Uh, it's, it's going to be a lot harder no. to game all of them simultaneously. People are arguing about it on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. People have actually, um, someone <laughs> in a tongue tongue in cheek, had come up with the Kardashian index. So yeah. it's kind of an evolution of the H-index, but it looks at the, um, the does your number of Twitter followers correlate with your publications or your citations? And if you have a high Kardashian index, that means that your Twitter followers far outpaces what you should have for your, uh, for your track record. So <laughs> a lot yeah, because God knows people who that. get the most citations who write method papers are generally very interesting, fulsome individuals. <laughs> Heavy sarcasm. <laughs> ah. yeah, I think yeah. I think break. Break? Let's take a quick break. We'll be back soon. Hello, I wish to register a complete. Hello, miss. What do you mean, miss? 
No, I'm sorry, I have a cool. I wish to make it complete. <laughs> sorry, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about this... Journal article. What I purchased not half an hour ago from this very... Overpriced journal subscription service. Oh, yes, sir. Latest insane psychological finding. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It's... A salami-sliced, pea-hacked piece of unbelievable upside-down bullshit. That's what's wrong with you. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's resting, look. Welcome back to Everything Hurts, and today we are talking with William Gunn, who is the Director of Scholarly Communications at Elsevier, and you can find William on Twitter at Mr. Gunn, that's M-R-G-U-N-N. Now, before we get back into the episode, we just want to give uh, thanks to people that have been uh, talking about us online. We had our episode last week uh, with Michelle Noyden and got a lot of great feedback from that. Uh, We had uh, Ahmed Kali, uh, who mentioned that this podcast is the highlight of my daily morning commute. A lot of people listen to the show during their commutes. I know I listen to podcasts during my commutes. Yeah, uh, walking to work. If you're yeah. listening to this, if you're listening to this during your commute, stare Don't immediately at the man on your right. Stare at the man on your right right now. Hold gaze, hold gaze until he gives you a look. Now shake your head slowly and kind of go, and then look back to the front again. Done. What? We're spreading love. Oh, what was that? Discontent. We're spreading discontent. <laughs> Let us know how that goes. But we, 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 had, we had a lot of <laughs> no, <don't. laughs> we, we had a lot of people who actually mentioned that uh, this was uh, the best episode yet, and, uh, and I agree. It was a fantastic because we didn't episode. talk. Yeah. No, just like this episode, so it's great. That's why we love having guests on. But uh, yeah, thanks to uh, Ahmed Kali, to uh, to Jordan, who's been a, a long time uh, fan of the show as well that's omnes omnes res network on twitter uh also to rude hortensius who uh, was also catching up on the podcast while on a plane now we, we got 40 episodes so we uh J- james and i are a long way from home so whenever we're, we're doing those big trips to sydney back home we can uh, load up the um the, the the podcast and you can too and also thanks to daniel lakens who is at lakens who actually is the creator Isn't of the lakens three- Larkins, I think it's Larkins. Sorry, sorry, Daniel, for mispronounce that. But he is Racist. the creator. <laughs> he is the creator of the free uh, course on Coursera, which is improving your statistical inferences. Now, I haven't done the course, but I've heard fantastic things about it. And uh, Daniel mentioned that he is completely clueless why it took him until now to check out at Hertz Podcast. Uh, and he was referring to last week's episode. It's almost like he's a busy man with a job. <laughs> almost, almost. But if you want to right. catch us on Twitter, you can at at Hertz Podcast. And you can also find us on Facebook as well. Just search Everything Hertz Podcast. And on Facebook and Twitter, that is the best way that you can contact us if you have any ideas for future episodes. And people do, and we are noting them, and we hope we can get to them in the future. But enough on that. Today we are speaking with uh, with William Gunn, and uh, now I really want to look into this idea of okay. Say we actually see a paper that's published, and we feel compelled to object. How would this process best work to do this? Well, it, <clears throat> it depends a little bit on the objection. It could range anywhere from, you know, posting a comment on PubMed Commons, writing a blog post, which I wish people did more, to be honest. The blog posts are much better than Twitter. Um, uh, Or or writing the editor. If I thought the paper was, you know, a legitimate attempt at science and I just disagreed with their methods or the conclusion or something like that, I would go the post-publication peer review route, leaving a comment, writing a post, uh, something like that. Now, if I thought there was something academically dishonest about it, if there was falsification or fabrication of data that I suspected or there was plagiarism of huge chunks of text from another author or something like that, then I would contact the editor. Um, and if the editor didn't resolve the issue to my satisfaction, only then maybe I might contact the publisher. But, you know, the first thing they're going to do is talk to the editor and get their story. So you got to make sure you're clear and factual kind of like any customer service complaint really don't start off hot and accusative keep it simple keep it to the point and um you know lay out you know uh what your request is um and if they don't give you satisfaction you know then um 
then you, you do have the post-publication review route to, to go to. And, uh, you know, um, I think that gives people a, a lot of options for, um, for getting a correction or if they, you know, getting some satisfaction uh, one way or another. Uh, when, when we talk about this, I think in general, um, the, the idea that you should write to the editor when you've got a scientific disagreement a lot of the time is like if it's going to be just an argument to my way of thinking that's largely the provenance of mad old men um and there's a lot of uh like i don't know how you can get yelling and pounding the table into an email but that feels like it's a lot of the time part of the process when on if we've got to have a, a general discussion about I, I wish to register a complaint my hypothesis my hypothetical situation for that is i've got a serious problem with the way this research was conducted people are dropping conditions there's something in this paper that's gone seriously wrong the text is ripped off from the author elsewhere or from somewhere etc etc like problematic research not necessarily falsified or anything similar, but a real, like a problem with process like that. Um, a lot of the time, a statistical one, although you, then you get bogged down in whether or not it is the correct approach that was taking, etc. Um, I know an awful lot of people, obviously, who've left post-publication review on something. Dan, common? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, blogs, just look at blog posts. Uh, yeah, I mean... sure. And more common all the time. Um and obviously, like writing writing to the editor and having a, a a conversation with them is a mixed bag, depending on the area and the editor. And um, I'd like to I'd like to talk to an editor who receives a lot. Of, I think a, a good guest, if you know anyone who's going, would be an editor who has to deal with a lot of people who are really crazy because we don't see we don't see inside the box. Like the publication box. It is very easy to go, publication should be a certain way and we demand this and that and a share of that and some of that and less of that and more of this and it's all bollocks. And it's a conversation that's very rarely had with people who are actually the editor of a thing. And I've talked to, I think in my whole life, I've had a long conversation with one this is someone who talks too much and talks all sorts of shit about science at random angles for many years. I think I've had a good, solid conversation with one editor. So there's a an, an area of that where I, the, I don't think the conversation enters into the public consciousness of speaking about science too much. However, do you know any... I, I, I don't know how... Do you really think an appeal to a publisher is ever going to be successful considering like every journal has got its own editorial standards for what is or isn't a problem? Um, every, all of those relationships are managed ad hoc. There's no... Why isn't, there's no publisher like top-down misconduct procedure for anything, right? So there, there are um, uh, ethical standards for how... Uh, publishers should operate and how they should manage the journals. There's the COPE guidelines um, and um, a nice lady named Jenny Barber I think is uh, uh, on Twitter and um, I always see her at these you know reproducibility events. She's pretty accessible um, and can tell you about you know the, the ethical standards that, that editors are in fact supposed, supposed to adhere to and and journalists do overrule uh, them from time to time. There have been cases where, you know, um, editors have uh, shown favoritism to a um, uh, a colleague. You know, they've had these like little citation trading cartels kind of built up, and the the publishers had to step in and say, "Hold on, what you guys are doing is is not right, and you know, we need to cut this out. We need to fix this." Um, and in some cases, you know, editorial staff have been uh, been replaced. So, so that does happen. You know, rarely, but but it can happen. It's just yeah, know, it, it's, it has it's to be like, kind of a citation bad cartels are really dumb crime. It's, <laughs> it's hidden. It's hidden in plain view. I mean, it's like plagiarism. It's in, it's one hundred percent reliable to prosecute, and it's of absolutely no consequence unless people know about it. 
That's why plagiarism is also a stupid crime. It's impossible to hide. Yeah, yes, especially I mean, now. you didn't publish anything in the first place. So, yeah, I, I hope you're catching people who are doing citation rings and stuff like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that stuff, that stuff Way um, out in the shows open. up. Thomson Reuters will, you know, find that stuff and remove it from uh, their index. We also find that stuff and remove that um, when we compile the site score and things like that. So... Um, you can you can see that kind of stuff again on you know when you um, look at certain um, uh, reports for how um, uh, how many times you know an editor uh, you know appears in um, a publication um, and one of the things that's particularly telling is uh, how long a paper is out for review. <laughs> one of the cases uh, that was that stood out pretty obvious uh, was papers from this small set of, of authors um, when or out for review for like two or three days uh, max, whereas yeah. everyone else was oh, you know, yeah. like out for two yeah. or three months. Yeah. So I'm like, come on. They just oh, oh, I wish it was that yeah. quick. They were expecting no one to have their eye on the ball. All right. Um, you were in biomedical science yourself specifically before you started working for publishing in some context right yep can i ask what specifically because that's interesting yes so i uh um, did my phd at tulane university in new orleans on um, uh, uh, bone marrow derived stem cells and the interaction between those and um the malignant B cells in multiple myeloma. So it was a Rush. fun. Um, it was a fun little thing. You know the looks you would get from some people in, you know, um, South Louisiana when you told them you were doing stem cell research was was fun. Even though this stuff was <laughs> oh yes, right. Are and, you one of those people that grinds up babies? Yeah. No, I'm not. I grind up bones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hours of fun for all. Um, so you were you were in your formal research um, for at least a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, did, you, did, did you ever? Sorry, go on. No, I just was going to say I I did um, my PhD and then um, had a uh, a little break uh, there before I had my dissertation written up for a hurricane to blow through New Orleans and a big uh, flood to happen and and all of that and then came back to finish writing up and uh, um, actually ended up moving to um, uh, to start working at a biotech company as I was was writing up which I don't recommend to anyone by the way get your PhD written up first because otherwise <laughs> you know you you might not make the progress that you had had hoped but ah um, uh, yeah. yeah writing up's not so bad though so you never, you would never in like you, you've never, like you sat down one morning doing research proper, and you never saw something and went, oh, I'm I'm compelled to change the scientific record, and had to go out and do it from scratch as oh, like a time. junior postdoc or a PhD. All the time, I have a, um, a letter or two um, to Nature that I've written, um, and that I you know proudly post on my uh, on my CV. Um, and you know it was you know me uh registering a complaint and uh i was one of those people you know i would email um you know pubmed saying hey why don't you have a you know an rss feed for search queries before that you know back when they uh, didn't have that and i always felt like things <laughs> could be better. Does. you can dig into my you know yeah. old blog post and see me you know uh railing on about you know how great this is or how horrible this other thing is um and uh actually not too embarrassed about the particular topics that i chose to to praise or attack i think um you know history has uh has been reasonably kind to me so far um on that but that's really a lot of the reason that i ended up at mendeley to begin with was to you know come out of the trenches and try to work on the the process What's been the biggest surprise for you from going from that 
uh, being on the end of being a researcher to now being on the other side of the publication table? Well, a big you know um, shift in perspective uh, comes when you actually start talking to editors from from their side of the table, um, and you can hear a lot of um, things that you know you just might not have have thought about. Like for example, a lot of times um, editors will will um, will tell you you get all of this feedback about you know people saying that you know oh this um uh this editor doesn't want to uh, uh to publish something because they're you know against anything that you know does uh, they support a specific theory and they don't want to publish anything that kind of departs from that and and so on and so forth but honestly you know like spare the editor that stuff that's for you know for peer review if you have a you know something and you think an editor is is repressing your idea you can find a place that does want to publish it now um and if you go to all the major journals in the field and no one is still interested maybe do a quick check of your your crackpot index um you can google uh, i think it's joan baez crackpot index and you find a, a physics focused list but basically you know here are all of the oh, things a thing. <laughs> yes that, we'll have the link to that. Oh yes, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you the link. Um, you can put it in the, in the show notes or something. But essentially, you get one point for for saying you know something that goes against the scientific consensus. Some points for not showing your data, but you get like twenty points for saying you know uh, how long you've been working on something and pointing out that you've been doing it alone, um, and you know forty <laughs> points for saying that there's a conspiracy against you. You know. <laughs> It's a nice list. Um, That's amazing, and it's really. Yeah, we'll have, have to do one for the, uh, for the psychological sciences. If you if you've got more than one cat, you get sixty points. <laughs> uh. How many times you reference, you know, Galileo or Newton or Copernicus, and you know, say that they're wrong? Yeah, there's probably uh, probably uh, trigger adjectives like uh, downtrodden. Ah. <laughs> uh. Nice. I would. I want to. I want a crackpot index. I could, do you get the opposite? Um, I published a, a bunch of bunch of stuff ages ago, and a bunch of uh, lunatic anti science people on the internet were very negative on me for several weeks. So, um, do I, do <laughs> I get negative for? points? Sorry. Oh, I can't even remember. It was like something, was it a um, nutrition thing or a, a physiology thing or a psych uh, thing? It could be one of those things. It might have been. It might have even been a homeopathy thing back in the day. Because um, someone publishes. Ah, uh, yeah. So I, go, I probably get negative points with that. That's awesome. Um, I tell you what. I'll very very quickly. I just realised that it comes to. Uh, I've, I wrote a handy guide for people who are thinking of writing to an editor. It's extremely short. It's like a flow chart. I'll read it out and you can tell me whether or not I get a crackpot index, all right? One, is it absolutely necessary? Yes, no. Assume yes. So, write to the authors. Uh, everything is resolved or they won't listen. All right, assume they won't listen. Uh, leave your remarks on post-publication review. Uh, something happens or no one pays attention. Assume no one pays attention. Write to the editor of the journal. Issue is dealt with or she doesn't care. All right. Now you're out of options, and the above process will take about a year, and everyone will hate you. <laughs> but, it, but it sounds like now that there is actually the option of uh, of going straight <laughs> to the publisher, which I didn't actually realise was a was a thing. I don't know how much they handle of the look. It's, it's also look. This is I'm starting to get the idea that there's a like behind the scenes here. There's an environment of. An, an awful there's a real sort of 80 20 thing going on when it comes to the volume of complaints that these people are getting right yeah so, so it's just like any other um, any other message forum there's a tremendous number of people that you know um will uh you know that have that have opinions and will express them privately but not you know uh, put them out online on the web for everyone to see that's kind of the, the central problem with post-publication peer review in in general uh, so uh, there's there's a tremendous amount and it can be very very eye-opening to talk to an editor and you know um, just ask them to tell you the story of Claire Francis you know like um, ask them you know what they think about stat check uh, many, you know many of them are you know um, are grateful for the people that point out things that they may have otherwise missed or to call their attention to things 
even if you know they're kind of um, you know uh, it's a it's a certain kind of, of of gratitude of you know thank you for creating you know more work for me to do kind of gratitude. All academic all academic things are like that. When someone says I ex- uh, I accept your paper, here are forty copy editing notes. Right after, oh, my paper's been accepted. I go, oh, for fuck's sake, I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. Go on. Oh. Well, it's all, it's like this the, the, the only journal. source of busy work. You go with the pros that, you know, that have that have good copy editors and know how to um, have copy editing services. And that way you don't have to Oh, no, they're, uh, the, they're the ones who's sending lunatic bullshit back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and why do, oh, so why do they, why do they, um, why, why, why do, why do copy editors replace equals sign? I'm asking for Michelle Norton from last week. Why do copy editors replace equals the 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 keystroke with a picture of an equals? You know, I there are some publishing workflows that um, that don't render um, uh, scientific symbols very well. Um, and I, I'm just going to guess that, that maybe that has something to do with it. But, um, you know, we're big fans of uh, uh, Arthuria and, you know, um, LaTeX and that kind of stuff. So that, you know, it, it gets it done. And uh, Yeah, you've got, you got a lot less copy editing you need if someone's going to give you, give you a manuscript in LaTeX. Well, yeah, you just uh, if you get it built out of authority, you won't need to pay copy editors at all. Exactly. Yeah, I like that little back end. You could you could you could, you could sink all that money back into into paying cranks to write your bad emails. <laughs> Absolutely, we love it. Now, I want to I want to I want to cycle back a little bit because we've been speaking about how to actually complain um, and how to speak with the editor or, or with the publisher. But I think a lot of these things would actually be prevented if the peer review process itself was was improved. Now, uh, I've I've noted that a few journals, um, particularly all the the Biomed Central group, are now pushing this um, open peer review, and I think the quality of open peer review is a lot better. I've uh, I'm actually I'm an, I'm an associate editor with um, with with uh, BMC Psychology, and uh, when you ask people to do the open peer review, they are much much more uh, careful and much more thorough with the reviews compared to the journals that I'm an associate editor for where this doesn't exist and the standard is is completely different and you almost get that to a degree um, a little bit when you're reviewing for Frontiers because your name not the review yeah because your, your name's name, published yeah your name's published there uh, for Elsevier what sort authors, of stuff authors is... get that too because you're like when I get this published I know exactly whose house I'm going to go around to and throw back <laughs> dog shit through the front but no, window you, it's one out of three because you have you have three reviews, so you don't know who did the review, at least for Frontiers. But for the other ones, um, you, you can actually see exactly um, who did it and what they said. For Elsevier, what sort of stuff is happening when it comes to open peer review? Or is it happening right now and we're just not aware with, with certain journals? Yeah, so there, there are um, things that are happening now. We had been piloting uh, open peer review with a set of journals. Um, and based on the feedback that we get... Um, Seventy percent of the uh, of the authors said that they thought the peer reviews were improved by the process. Um, we are going to be rolling that out to um, to all of our journals to have open peer review as an option. Um, now it's going to be a multi year rollout because we want to um, you know make sure that we're um, getting everyone on board and kind of moving with the market as we do this. Um, but uh, but yeah, open peer review is coming to to um, a journal near you. And with the pilot, um, so do, are people given the option, or is it uh, have some journals gone with a blanket? This is how we're doing it, kind of like BMC, the BMC family, or do people have the option? Because I, I understand there's a few people, particularly junior academics, that are a bit hesitant to do open peer review, more so because they're a bit worried about the repercussions of re- reviewing a senior editor. Uh, sorry, a, a senior author doing a paper, saying something negative, and the senior author coming back at them later. What sort of things are in place for, for that? Yeah, so um, uh, that's going to be um, a, it's going to be an opt-in decision um, at the journal level and at the author level um, 
for how they want to do that. If somebody doesn't want to do open peer review, in most cases, they're going to have the option to, to not do that. There may be some journals that say, no, we want to make it mandatory. And if you don't want that, then you know, don't review for us. And, you know, and that's fine too. But um, how to handle these cases where, uh, where there's, you know, there's frankly, there's bullying that goes on. Um, I think, uh, again, it's good to, um, to have the, uh, the editor on your side where, and to be able to say, hey, you know, look, I feel like, you know, I feel nervous about doing this. Or I did this review and now I'm, you know, I'm having this retaliation to happen, and um, and they can come with a solution that um, that makes uh, that it, you know that addresses it. You know, if a, if an editor is on your side and says and asks, you know, an author, hey, you need to you need to knock this off, and it's received differently than if it's just the um, if it's just the, the junior researcher. But in a lot of cases, just leaving it anonymous and, um, you know, not having them, uh, not having to, to fear about the retaliation works. But it, I want to stress, this is all fairly rare. I mean, the, the fear of it is way more common than the, than the reality of it. So, you know, I wouldn't, uh, if I were a junior researcher, I think I would, be bold enough to put my reviews out there and to showcase the the quality of my reviews because when they're open you have identifiers for them and you can um you can showcase on your mendeley profile for example i'm a re reviewer for these journals here's the reviews i've written mm, and that that's actually what, kind that's of what publons is for and you don't even have to have the reviews open exactly yeah, i think yeah. as well the other thing to to consider is that this model uh, actually favors junior researchers because it means when the senior researchers are reviewing your papers they're less likely to be narky and rude if their names go on it as well so it works towards your favor in that respect mm. yeah that's yeah right. for sure look at the other it also you the, the the lovely part of it we're talking about uh well, we expect science to be different there's a, a, a lovely thing you you can hide behind being right you know. If people are going to leave terrible criticisms under their own names and you get to argue with them, um, or at the very least you get to prosecute an argument that says what you've done is worthwhile and then what whatever response they've had is unwarranted or insufficient to prevent publication, etc., etc. Um, I've, had I've had plenty of punches up. Yeah, I've had plenty of punch-ups with reviewers and and got to a point where the editor's gone. All right, we need to shut this shit down because, um, you know, this is not. It's not a simple case of uh, paper is wrong, reviewer is right. Um, and then you just have to hope that the editor sees it the same way you do. But um, you you can you can hide behind the simple expedient uh, fact of making better decisions in the first place and then knowing more shit. Um, doesn't always happen, but it is it is actually possible. Well, I think there's an important point to to bring up here, which you know, which is there there is a, a little bit of a power imbalance, and again, you know, these are people are human and they have their biases, which means you know there are biases that come out um, from from editors and from reviewers um, based on the you know the age or the nationality or the gender of um, the author as well, and so. You know, um, these are things that uh, that editors have to think about, and we're going to have to keep in mind um, as we move to a more open peer review to keep these kinds of biases um, uh, managed and and handled because they're they exist, and you know, um, people are continue are going to continue to be uh, you know the uh, the kinds of creatures that make decisions based on you know our rough heuristics um that we that we are so i feel confident that we're going to find a way to handle these um these issues as they as they come up um as long as we're not trying to you know continue to just say oh well anonymity fixes everything and uh you know these problems don't exist so i mean it I think it's positive. It's a positive development overall. Well, we're uh, 
running out of time for today's episode. Um, but before we finish up, we just want to, we love asking our guests a few questions about how they approach their career. I think this is really interesting and in, uh, in seeing how, <laughs> and seeing how this works. So, uh, first thing is, uh, William, what is something that you believe that others think is crazy? <laughs> um, well, Crosby, Stills and Nash is a good band. They're not, they're awful. You know, I, I believe that, you know, running, you know, um, 10 or 12 miles up a mountain is a fun activity. Um, I believe you're mad. That... <laughs> That's it. That's it. Pack it in. I believe. Up yeah. a mountain. Yes. You're sick, uh, man. No. Okay. Crazy. Yeah, fair enough. Dan, uh, that's a good one because that is actually uh, proper off the shelf, that one. Yeah. Um, I believe Bitcoin uh, is going to be a good investment. And also, I believe most research is wrong and that's okay, as it should be. Um, that is the process. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if that one's crazy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost the, the consensus. <laughs> Okay, what Good is answer. the? Uh, that's uh, yeah. You, you would love Norway if you if you like running up mountains. It's yeah. uh, it's it's the land of people running up mountains. Uh, well, second one. What is the best or most worthwhile investment that you've made for your career? Um, I think it was really valuable for me to learn R. To learn. That's not, that's two out of two, <laughs> yeah. James. The writing's on the wall, James. You have to throw <laughs> MATLAB. <laughs> Next question. I'm not just doing that, to, you know, but yes, I think it's, I think it was really, um, really handy because it teaches you, it leads you into learning about data management and learning about separating the analysis um, from the data itself and just all kinds of good practices come out of that. There you go, James. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, number three. Uh, what is one book or paper that you would recommend that everyone should read? So there was a um, uh, a recent science paper by uh, Goodman, Greenman, and Ioannidis uh, called "What Does Research Reproducibility Mean?" Uh, Ioannidis is um, notable for his his meta science research. Oh, yeah, meta science. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, uh, the his paper, you know, um, why most published research is false, was from the very beginning of Mendeley, one of the most widely read papers on Mendeley, uh, much more than it was it was cited. It was very highly read, and this is kind of, um, you know, their uh, their approach to kind of systematize um, the discussion about reproducibility. And I think it would, if the other thing was interesting to basically every Mendeley user ever, um, then I think this paper would also be interesting and useful for, to help them think about, um, you know, how to set up, what are the things you could consider when starting a particular avenue of, of research. And just quickly, uh, from your experience with Mendeley, what is the difference or what is the characteristics of those papers which tend to be read lots but not cited? Uh, well, some of the... Um, Papers that are read uh, heavily by clinicians, um, like American Heart, you know, Association um, guidelines. Those things, you know, are, are read. They're sh they're shared with a lot of, of groups. You know, the um, ambulance services in, in the UK and things like that. Um, mm. But they aren't cited as much. So pr practitioner focused kinds of things. Um, so so I shouldn't be writing those types of papers for. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, they, they get widely read and you score highly on, on those metrics and, and those metrics are earning more and more. But um, they aren't cited as much. And um, uh, other ones are things just about, you know, interesting um, things to read, like the, the meta science papers. And then you have papers that, that play well on social media, like um, uh anything that mentions, you know, marijuana in the title or something that tags onto a news event like the Fukushima disaster or um, something that talks about, you know, um, uh, you know, um, that has a theoretical description of, of why men prefer large breasts or something, which is, you know, another silly paper. The, the, the da know. Daily Mail type <laughs> papers. Yeah, exactly. The Daily Mail kinds the of The ones that play well with that demographic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. You can write those, Dan. You'll be fine. 
why oxytocin is the love hormone of choice for voles or not voles but for women between the ages specifically of 25 and 44 i don't know yeah so there's one other interesting tidbit about um talking about you know online attention and and crackpots and all this stuff i heard this this stat mentioned once from the the maintainers of, of archive so if you look at the page views of any given page in a paper um on archive uh, you see that the far and away um the papers that are most widely read are the ones about black holes and quarks and quasars and quantum and whatever um, and there's no correlation between that and and citations but if you look only at page views that were resulting from people using the search engine at archive.org like going to the site and doing a search there um, then the, those page views do correlate so it's it's very clear you know there are people that are out there that are Googling for, you know, like, um, you know, what the bleep do we know kinds of stuff and landing on, you know, the archive, uh, you know, almost inadvertently uh, because it shows up high for some, you know, pseudoscience kind of a term in the abstract. Very cool. <laughs> well, we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining us, William. We appreciate your time, and we will put up all the links. We'll also put up the uh, the link to your blog as well. What was the uh, what was the address to that blog? Um, well, it's just uh, uh, synthesis.williamgun.org. Excellent. We'll we'll put that up as well. But uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, oh, we have the the Everything Hurts uh, mascot. James's cat has popped up as well. He's got amazing uh, timing. In the last couple of minutes of an episode, he suddenly goes, "I haven't had lunch. What's going <laughs> on, idiots?" He says hi. Pops. Sorta. <laughs> Hello, mate. But. Ah. Uh, We'll be back again for another episode soon. So uh, until then, bye for now.